Good morning, church. Good morning, Sycamore View family, and to so many other friends who have chosen to join us from all over the United States and maybe places all over the world. We're glad you're with us today. I can't believe this is week seven that we are in this format right now. Seven weeks, and I'm just I'm used to being up on this stage where I'm I'm walking back, you know, from the left to the right, looking at people over on the left, in the middle, and the right, and now it's. It's so much harder having to just stare into one place. I'm, I'm used to looking into a lot of faces, not just one face. And, and you may be tired of just seeing my face, but this is, what, this is what we're offering right now. This is what we're doing, and we're trying to be as faithful as we can in this season. Hey, the leaders, we're, we're meeting and we're talking and we're praying right now. We don't know when executive orders are going to be lifted and when groups will begin to meet again. We don't know if this is going to be weeks from now or months from now, but we're, we're praying now. We just ask God to give us wisdom so that we can be intentional and that we can be thoughtful whenever groups do begin to meet as much as I wish that whenever this happens, like all of us can just pile in a room and sing Living Hope and sing It As Well and have a big service. It's probably not going to happen like that. There'll probably be smaller groups that are going to meet, but we are, we're thinking now, we just want plans in place that are going to pastor us and walk us through whatever season we're in. And until those decisions have to be made, until then, we are going to use every method we can. We're going to do everything we can to lift up up the name of Jesus and to keep us connected together as a church and to people and, and most of all to God. Open your Bibles right now to Matthew chapter 28. We're in a series right now that we have called Paths. And I talked last week that what we're, what we're doing and what I want to do right now is I want you to understand, as a church here, what we believe is there is one path to God. It is a path through Jesus. So we surrender to Jesus, confess Jesus as the Lord of our life, give our life to Jesus. We're baptized into Jesus. There's one way to God, and it's through Jesus. But from the resurrection, there are a lot of paths on how we get to live this out in the world. And even what this means right now, whether whatever home we're in, whatever job we're in. Just, there are a lot of different paths that God is leading us on on how we live out the Jesus story. This is really exciting to me. So we're in this series, Paths. So what I want to do next Sunday is I want to talk about the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and how the Great Commission functions in a time like what we're in right now and prepares us to live in, in the year 2020. And what I want to talk about today is how the Great Commission ends. I talked to you last week. In a way, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do have an ending, but in a way, they don't end. It's ongoing, but in a way, they do have an ending, right? They do come to an end where there's a period, you flip a page, it's another chapter. So in Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20, and we're going to talk more about it next week, but I want to, I want to build on the very end of this. But let's, let's read this together. In verse, verse 16, it says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. To the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and said to them. So Jesus didn't come and say, okay, those of you who doubt, you go over, over there to the left. And then all those who were worshipping with a true heart and no doubt, you come to me and I'm just going to speak to you. He spoke to all of them, even those who didn't have it all figured out. And here's what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And here's what I want us to talk about today. A promise we stand on. And surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. I am with you always. So according to Matthew 28, there are 11 disciples, 11 apostles who are there with Jesus in this moment. And what do you think that meant to them? For Jesus to give them a mission, he gives them an assignment, 
He tells them what this life is going to be like now. He calls them into something. You're going to go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize people, teach people. This is the mission of the church. And then Jesus says, I am with you always. So for the apostles, for the disciples, what they hear Jesus saying is, okay, this boss is giving me an assignment and the boss is also saying, I'm not leaving you. Whatever assignment, whatever mission I give you, I'm coming along with you for this whole ride. Like I'm going to be there. I am with you always. It meant something to them. Most people believe that the Gospel of Matthew was written around 70 AD. Written around the time when the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. So most people believe that people who were receiving Matthew's Gospel, this story of Jesus for the first time, are people who were under forms of persecution. The temple, which even for Jewish Christians had symbolized for years the presence of God, security of God, that God was with them. And now the temple has been destroyed. And I'm sure there were a lot of people at that time thinking, okay, the temple has been dismantled. It has been crushed. What else is going to be crushed? How many more of us are going to be crushed? What do you think it meant for them to hear, I am with you always? It's the I am with you promise. In Mark chapter 16, in the long ending of the gospel of Mark, in your Bibles, and in Mark 16, the way Mark's gospel ends, the long ending is this, beginning in verse 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. This is the Bible's way of saying this has been accomplished. The work has been accomplished. Jesus has sat down. The work is completed. Jesus accomplished what no one else could ever accomplish. And verse 20 says this, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and listen to this, And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So what Jesus is saying here, what Mark's gospel is saying, Jesus ascended into the heavens. And then the very next verse is the mission that the church is on. Jesus, the Lord, worked with them. His body was gone, yet still fully engaged. Body gone, fully engaged. So people heard that in Mark 16. But most people believe that Mark's gospel was written somewhere in the mid-60s AD. Most people believe that Mark's gospel was written to Christians who were living in Rome. And some people believe that it's written around the time when Nero was like destroying and persecuting a lot of Christians. And some people believe Mark's gospel was written in a time of a Jewish revolt where there were Jews who were revolting against Rome, which meant Rome was going to come and crush the Jews. So if you had any connection with the Jews at all, like you, you may be running for your life. You may have your life taken from you. You may be, uh, your job's taken from you. Who knows what that may mean? mean? And now here they are. They hear, okay, there's an assignment. There's a mission. And what we hear is Jesus is moving with them. Body gone, body ascended, yet fully engaged. This is who our God is. This is what our God has done. This is what our God offers up to us. His body, Jesus' body is gone. He is ascended, yet still fully engaged. It's the I am with you promise. And this is how the Gospels end. With this promise of God's abiding presence. There was a time... Back when I was 20 years old, I preached my very first gospel meeting. So for those of you who may not know what a gospel meeting is or was, I mean, there was a time when there were these revivals that were held, and some of them would go on for two weeks where every night, you and your family, your kids, you would meet at the church every night for two weeks, and you'd try to invite your friends, and there would be a worship service, and there would be a person who would preach every night for two weeks, just a, a, a revival, trying to stir in hearts. It was to edify the church. It was trying to bring people who didn't know Jesus to Jesus. When I was 20 years old, I was asked to preach in my first gospel meeting. 
which meant at this point it was four days. It was a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Five sermons, four days, same audience at a place out in East Texas. So I went to one of my mentors, Randy Harris. And Randy's been a mentor of mine, a friend of mine for 20 years. Some of you may know who Randy is. And I went to Randy and Randy has given me advice. He has shared wisdom in my life. He has spoken into my life. Big decisions we've had to make, moves that we've made. Randy is a voice I go to. Like I care about what Randy says. So when I was 20 years old, I went to Randy. I was still early on in college. I said, Randy, look, man, I'm going to East Texas where they've asked me to do a gospel meeting. I agreed to it. I'm preaching five times in four days. What wisdom would you give me? And Randy, and those of you who know Randy, you can see Randy saying this. Randy put his hand on my shoulder and Randy said this, Josh, good luck. And Randy turned and walked away. That was it. And I'm left there thinking, bro, like all you're going to give me right now is a good luck. That's it. Good luck. Like, you're, gonna, you're not going to walk me through this a little more? Like, how to build five talks on, on top of one? Like, all, the same audience five times. I don't know how to do this. I would preached many sermons up to that point, but never five in four days to the same crowd, having to craft five different messages. And now that's what you give me is a good luck. So here's the thing, man. When it comes to God, we don't serve a God who just offers up good luck to us. We don't serve a Jesus who, when he ascended into the heavens, just patted the apostles on the back and said, good luck. We don't serve a God who just waves us and wishes us luck and blesses us and just sends us on our way, hoping that we live out the assignment and the mission. We serve a God who, in and through Jesus, showed us, hey, there's a mission, there's an assignment, there's a purpose for you, and I'm not just patting you on the back and wishing you luck. I'm right there with you. And the church believed this. And the early church taught this, that our God, this is how it works, that our God has chosen to save people and God never wastes the salvation. Every person God saves, God wants to use, right? Every person God saves, God wants to use. And this is how it works. God is going to give the church until the day Jesus comes back assignments and mission and a purpose. And this is what it means for you to live out the message of Jesus in the world. And just so you know, I'm not just sending you out. I'm not just patting you on the back. I am with you. The, the story I often use when I think about this, and I've thought about this multiple times over the last few weeks, but when Casey and I, uh, the first four years of marriage, we lived in four different places. We would live in an apartment or a townhome for about a year, and then we'd move to another place, or we moved in with friends for six months, and then we moved to another place. One of, one of, uh, the house we lived in in our fourth year of marriage was right across the street from a, from a public school in the city where we lived. And there was this intersection right there. And I remember sitting out on the porch, and this was the first time it came to me, this image of how I think of God, especially in time when we're going through difficult things. And, and I, what, what I noticed every morning and every afternoon is that there was a, a crossing guard who would be there, the crossing guard, no matter what the weather was like outside. It could be 95 degrees. It could be snowing. It didn't matter. Pouring down rain. This crossing guard was there with the red vest, the orange vest. And the crossing guard was there to help walk kids through the intersection, uh, the, the, through the crossroads. So the crossing guard didn't stand on one side and then pat kids on the back when it looked like the, the, uh, they could cross, pat them on the back and wish them luck. And the crossing guard didn't stand on the opposite side and wave the kids to them when they thought that it was okay for them to pass. The crossing guard would hold the sign and walk with the kids and stop the traffic and, and walk with the people through the intersection, whatever they were going through. 
Our kids go to Snowden Elementary right now. There's a, a six-lane road right there by Snowden, which takes two crossing guards to make this happen. So now for seven years since our kids have been at Snowden, we witness these crossing guards doing this every single day, stopping traffic, walking with kids to the intersection. And this is a way I often think about God. That God is not just one who pats us on the back and wishes us good luck in life when, when God thinks it's okay to cross. And hey, just good luck making it. And God's not on the other side of life just trying to wave us to him. Through Jesus, what God reveals is Jesus is willing to walk with people through the intersections, through the crossroads, through what sometimes feels like traffic and loud noise and whatever else may be. God is one who through Jesus shows us God is going to walk through the intersections and crossroads to safely get us to the other side. That is what our God does. So John 1.14 has been an anthem for my life for many years. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. And Jesus permanently moved into what would be the kingdom of God, the mission of God, helping people, living among people. This is who our God is. So before I moved to Memphis a little over 12 years ago, I went and I got my second of three tattoos. Now, this may not be the best place to share this story, but I'm going for it. My grandparents have been gone for a long time. They've been dead for a long time. So, so please don't let them know because I think they would come back from the dead if they, if they knew this. But the second tattoo I got, it's on my left arm. And it's 114 for John 114. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And through the middle of it is the word disciple. So when I went to get this tattoo, I sat down in the chair and the guy that was going to put this tattoo on me sits down with me. He was a guy, he owned the place, a guy who was, I mean, man, this dude was stocky, upper 50s, early 60s, bald head with a huge beard. And he had a deep, raspy, like Johnny Cash type voice. And this guy sat down and begins putting John 114 on my left arm. And as he did, he began asking me, man, what, is, what, what does this mean? What does this stand for? And I began sharing with him the power of John 1.14. Like why it meant so much to me that Jesus, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And, and the power of what that means for my life and how I engage whatever neighborhood I've ever lived and how I want to try to live out the mission of God every single day of my life is okay. The word became flesh. God became flesh. And anywhere God went, there was a mission. Anywhere Jesus went, there was a mission. And I've try, I try to live that. I try to confess that with my mouth. Anywhere I go... I want to be looking for opportunities to lift up the name of Jesus. So I began sharing with this guy what that meant to me. No matter what valley you go through, no matter what pit you go through, no matter what season of life, the presence of Jesus given to his people is a promise we can stand on. I remember this guy looked at me and he said, he's, he's working on my arm and he looks at me and he's like, man, do you really believe that? Again, and this is not a preacher story where I'm exaggerating. The guy began to cry. Big dude, muscular, big beard, deep raspy voice began to tear up and cry. And as he, was, as, as he was shedding tears, he began telling me about his wife who was terminally ill. She'd been suffering from this illness for a number of years. They hadn't give her, give, given her much more time to live. 
So while he is shedding tears, he's still trying to work on my arm. So a moment I was like, hey, dude, why don't we, why don't we take a few minutes where we kind of, you know, gain our composure and we can talk about this for a minute. He's like, no, I'm fine. He's like, why? No, I'm fine. And kept working, keeps working on my arm. And I'm like, man, maybe we need a time of prayer. Can you bow your head, close your eyes, let's open our hands. Can we just hold hands or something? Like, I think you need to pause for a moment. But we kept processing and talking about what this could mean for him in his life. This I am with you always promise from Matthew 28, Mark 16 from John 1, 14 is a word that can perform in a tattoo parlor. It's a word that can perform when people are getting chemo treatment. It's a word that can perform in the lives of doctors, nurses, health care providers. All of you who are doing work to serve people right now, it, it performs for you that I am with you always. It is a word that performs for those of you right now feeling so isolated and alone. The I am with you promise, it performs, it means something. This is what our God is like. And I hope you believe this is what our God is like. The I am with you promise. No matter what you go through, I'm, I'm here. I'm with you. The Baylor Institute of Religion, Baylor University Institute of Religion, they did this uh, an amazing research a couple of years ago. And they asked all these questions about how people perceive God and how people think of God. And based on the feedback they got, the responses, they put the responses of four different ways people think about God. And they, they did this by placing, uh, there were four categories, and each category had either a high level or a low level of God's anger, or a high level or a low level of God's uh, interaction with us. So the first category was that God was an authoritarian God. And the authoritarian God has a high level of anger and a high level of engagement. The second category uh, there's authoritarian God, there's a critical God. Critical God has a high level of anger and a low level of engagement. And then there's the distant God. The distant God had a low level of engagement and a low level of anger. The distant God just doesn't really care. And then there's the benevolent God. Benevolent God had a low level of anger and a high level of expectation. So I think you could even think in your own life how you process the emotions of God and how active God is in our lives today. Is it a high level, a low level, a high level of or engagement, or a low level of expectation? And what their feedback showed them is most people's behaviors in life, how they choose to behave, how they choose to act, whatever their attitudes are, is greatly impacted by how they think about who God is. Even evangelism, depending on how you think of God, like this is, this helps frame whatever conversation you use when you're trying to tell people about who Jesus is. Is it a God who is angry and a God who is eager to throw arrows? Or is it a God who is full of, of love and compassion and service? And, and what do you do with the 6,000 places in the Bible or 600 places that do talk about the wrath and the anger of God and try to put that up against all these places that talk about the loving God? What they found in the research was this that 150 million Americans said that how they think of God is that God is angry, either authoritarian or critical. So here's my question. Do you want to know what God is like? And if you want to know what God is like, here's what you do. You look at Jesus. Now some people may say if you want to know what God is like, read the Bible. 
And I'm not gonna say that's like heresy or that's wrong, but here, I would simplify it like this. If you wanna know what God is like, you look at Jesus, study at Jesus, study Jesus, you focus on Jesus, and through Jesus, read the Bible through that lens. You wanna know what God is like? You look at Jesus. So when Jesus in Matthew 28, at the very end of Matthew 28, verse 20, when Jesus says, I am with you always, this was not a new strategy on the part of heaven. This wasn't like God in the Old Testament was a God full of anger and full of wrath and throwing arrows and waking up every day on the wrong side of the bed and just furious with people. And then Jesus comes to show you that there's actually a nice part of God. That's not how this works. It's not that Jesus came to say, I am with you always, but the God of the Old Testament or God up until that moment wasn't with people at all. Heaven didn't send Jesus as some PR strategy to repair God's image or reputation. That's not how this works. Jesus came to show you everything you see in me, this is what our God is like. This is who our God is. Slow to anger. That anger is a part of God. Slow to become angry. But everything you see in me, this is what God is like. So this I am with you promise doesn't begin in Matthew 28 verse 20. It begins in the book of Genesis. Start reading Genesis and the I am with you promise is there. Genesis 26 verse 28. Genesis chapter 28. All the way through Isaiah. If you read Isaiah 40 through 55 over and over and over again. You hear God saying to his people, I am with you. So when you see these, like you hear these things from God. Even in the Old Testament about a God who is saying, I will help you. I will be your helper. I will hold your right hand. God says, I will inscribe your name on my hand. God talks about being the lifter of our heads. God talks about calling people by name. God talks about, I will comfort you. God says, I will carry you. Do you see that throughout the entire Bible, we have a God who longs and wants a relationship with his people. So Jesus isn't doing a brand new thing. Jesus is revealing that what I am showing you is who our God is. God has always been and God still is. The God of the I am with you promise. This is what our God offers to us. And it's not conditional. It's not occasional. It's not transactional. It's not that if you behave right for a few days and I will come and give you my abiding presence for a few days. It's a promise. This right here isn't God's way of saying, I'm, I'm kind of giving you pieces of me or a, a photo album to remember me by. This is Jesus' way of saying, I am with you always means what it means. I am with you no matter where you go through, no matter what you go through in life. I am with you. And this is a promise we can stand on. Now here's the thing. If you want to experience the I am with you promise, this is a promise God gives to his children. This is a promise God gives to people who choose to live in the covenant with God. That God longs to be more than just your companion. God longs to be the Lord of your life the savior of your life. So right now, maybe this season that we're in has been stirring in your heart that maybe this whole Jesus thing needs to become more real for you. And, and if you are someone right now who you're looking for, what does it mean for me to surrender my life to Jesus? Or what does it mean for me to be a faithful disciple of Jesus? You can just leave it in the comment section, drop it on our, our message, our private message page, reach out to one of us at the church. We would love to talk to you more about this. And for this I am with you promise, for those of you right now that may be feeling isolated, 
Maybe depression is sinking in. Maybe there is despair. Whatever emotion you may be feeling as we go through this season, this is a promise that finds you right where you are. I am with you always. And as we go to communion in just a few moments, I want you to reflect on this. And right now, I just want to ask you where you are. Will you just, will you close your eyes, bow your heads, open your hands if you want to, and let's pray. For God, I want to declare right now in this moment that the words that leave your mouth, they do not return to you void. They perform. And for my friends listening to this right now, open up a place in their ears, their minds, and their hearts to receive from you this promise of your abiding presence. No matter what emotion has a hold of them right now, no matter what they are experiencing in their life, may this promise speak so loudly to them this week. And may this word and this promise invite them into deeper places in your heart. I pray this in the power of the name of Jesus.